Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our generous sponsors, BetterHelp, Gusto, and Artcat.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Aaron Holverson, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Aaron is a partner and senior project architect at Studio GWA in Rockford, Illinois, with a background in historic renovation, project management, and carpentry. Aaron uses his diverse experience in education to develop a holistic approach to each project at GWA. Aaron, I want to dive into this conversation. You and I met in San Francisco during the conference mm -hmm. at one of CVG's meetups. Yep. And we started talking and everything else sort of went away <laughs> because you and I connected and I was interested in what you were doing and how you were doing it specifically on the development work that you're doing. Yeah. And I said, I would love to have you on the show and bring this information to our audience of architects and share a little bit about what you do and why you do it and how you do it. And so welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited to talk to you. It was a good conversation there and glad to continue it now. Yeah, it was a good conversation. I'm looking forward to this one. Before we do that, let's give our audience a little bit of background. I'd love for you to share your origin story. When did you discover your passion for what you do and who or what inspired you to get started as an architect? I'll go back a little ways. I won't go back all the way to the beginning, but I grew up in South Central Wisconsin, live there now. A lot of carpentry in my lineage. So grew up around tools and other things. So your father was a carpenter? Yep, still is. Still to this day, my father, both of my brothers, and my grandfather, and I believe my great-grandfather as well. So, God, it's a whole history of yeah. family, generations after generations of building. Exactly. Everybody, we bond by using tools, apparently. <laughs> so how did you end up as an architect when everybody else was swinging hammers? You know, I, in high school, decided I've Loved history forever as well. And in looking at things to do in, in school, I decided to go to school for history. Thought I'll become a professor because, you know, that seemed the logical next step. Got into school and in year one decided I definitely do not want to be a teacher at all. <laughs> and 
talking with actually over Christmas break was working on a project with my dad and actually my aunt who was a interior designer was asking me about school and said, have you ever considered, you know, you love to draw and you like to build. So have you ever considered doing architecture? And I had never crossed my mind actually at that point. So, but it piqued my interest and I got looking and it was probably within a week or so that I started doing the search to find schools, what the options were, because where I was, wasn't going to work because they didn't have a program. So made the decision within about a month after that, switched my majors and finished out the year where I was and transferred and studied architecture. And the melding, I didn't think the history side of things would meld so well, but actually it works really well with what I'm doing now. And it was just a good blend. So that's how I ended up getting interested in architecture. But a lot of it, I just wasn't directed to architecture prior to that, but a lot of that interest already existed just in the construction side. Like I said, my dad's a carpenter and my brother and I, my older brother and I worked with him for a number of years, even after school I did actually. And it's just in my blood, I guess. Yeah. So just when you thought that you could get out, they pulled you back in. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It is true. Can't quite get away. Can't quite get away. So, but I'm really glad, honestly, I very much enjoy what I do. So what did you do after you graduated architecture school? I actually went back and worked with my father and brother for a a couple of years, then transitioned into working for a developer because I wanted to get a little bit more into the design side of things. I was doing some design work with my dad's company, but that was just us. It was just the three of us. So it was smaller scale things, a lot of cabinetry and things of that sort. And I wanted to get into some larger things and had a good friend who was getting into some development. And so worked with him for a couple of years, jumped to another firm after an opportunity arose in an actual architecture firm and then transitioned after that onto my own thing and ran my own thing for a couple of years and then joined Studio GWA, which at that point was Gary Anderson Architects. It's been about six and a half years ago. So I've been here ever since. So that's kind of the whole time frame there. Carpentry was intermixed throughout. (laughs) What was the reason for moving from your own practice to going to work for Gary? I was burned out, mainly. I had made the decision and I enjoyed it, but you know, you can still get burned out on things you enjoy. Yeah. Lots of architects are nodding their head right now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you can feel that. I was doing design build. So I was a licensed contractor as well. And about 50% of my time was spent in the office and the other 50% of the time I was wearing a tool belt. And I had a few guys working with me at the time just on the construction side. And it was great. They're great guys. Still enjoy working with them. One of them was my younger brother and had built some good projects, really enjoyed it. But there was a lot. I have five kids as well. And at that time, my youngest was just a newborn and the other one was still in diapers. There was a lot going on in our life. We were finishing building our house and there was too many things. And so even though I wasn't looking for something, when somebody mentioned this firm and just mentioned, it seems like your passions align. You should just talk to them. They're looking for somebody. I discounted it at first. And then after looking into it a little bit further, decided it was worth looking into. And it definitely was, I would say. it's a, There was a huge relief. I really enjoy the team aspect. We're a small, but we're a little bit larger than we were at that point. Well, we're about three times what we were when I joined, but we're still in the 15-ish range of people. And At this point now, I'm a partner, but sharing the burdens that we all as architects experience, both from the client side, from the contractor side, just from the daily work side as well, and the business side, sharing those burdens ended up being one of the things that really drew me to that. So, And I have not regretted it a day since. took me a while to transition out because you can't just drop all projects you're working on. Right. When was that? When was the transition? I was full-time here... In t- middle of 2017 is when I officially was full-time. So Okay. And today you're a partner at GWA. Yep. So what's your role there? What do you do on a daily basis? On a daily basis, I'm myself and Jen, we're the, there's three partners, Jen, myself, and Ashley. Ashley's an urban planner and Jen and I are architects. So Jen and I manage most of the architecture projects. Ashley gets involved every once in a while. And we'll talk about some of that stuff as we get into the development side of things. but most of our work is historic tax credit projects. But 
on the day-to-day kind of upper-level project management, client relations, business development, a lot of business development recently. Ashley and I do a little bit more speaking now than we have in the past. Speak at conferences on becoming more semi-regular basis, usually about development and historic tax credits. So there's little elements of that that get interspersed throughout the day, you know, in prep for things intermixed with, I love design. I love to draw. I'm a hand drawing person. I've, I don't want to say forced, but kind of forced the whole office to get into hand drawing before (laughs) our project meetings every two weeks. So we, as an office now are doing little sketch sessions every two weeks prior to our office-wide meeting. That's a great idea. So yeah, a lot of preliminary design, but then I'm involved kind of throughout, just not necessarily on the day-to-day project management side of things at this point. So business operations, things of that. Well, when we were talking in San Francisco, and you just mentioned it just now, historic tax credits for development, Yep, that's what triggered my interest in having you come on the show. Because yeah. there are lots of architects, almost every architect I talk to has this sort of small desire to get into development. They're interested in it. Some of them are passionate about it. They want to do it, but they don't know how. They're afraid. Mm -hmm. And you're doing it. And you're doing it in a very interesting, unique way. And I wanted to share that with our audience. And so can you sort of, at a very base level, describe what you're doing? And then we'll sort of get into the details of how you're doing it. So it started with Gary, actually, our founder, who's He's still around, still doing things all the time, just not involved in the day-to-day operations of the firm at this point. But he, very passionate about his downtown here in Rockford and finding, he observed, and this was 40 plus years ago now, observed the challenge that I'm sure everyone who's listening has encountered. Financing of projects can be really difficult. Right. That's the biggest hurdle. Yes, yes, exactly. Finding money is a difficult part of the project. And so many projects die because they just end up not working. Great ideas, great clients, but they just, they don't pencil out. And the federal government has a program in place. It's the Historic Tax Credit Program, which is managed by the National Park Service. And each state, most states, not all, most states have a program as well. And they're layered programs. You can use both. But the gist of it is those programs enable buildings that are eligible for historic taxes. So they're historic structures, buildings that are either listed on the National Register or important to your community. And for some reason, they're in a historic district, a national historic district, and seen as contributing buildings to that district. If you are doing a project on those buildings, you may be eligible to utilize these historic tax credits, which federal level is 20%. And depending on your state, that varies, you know, in Wisconsin right now, it's 20% as well. And that's eligible construction costs or QREs, qualifiable rehabilitation costs, expenses. But it amounts to a large percentage of the project. So these projects where you have huge gaps, you know, the construction cost is way up here, but the return, because, you know, even in our city, which is a decent sized city, but not large, rents just are not there to make those numbers work out. We joke that we have Chicago construction prices, but Rockford rates. (laughs) We laugh about it, but it's true. Honestly, we do. It costs the same to build here as it does in Chicago. It's just we can't charge the rents that they do. So those gap fillers are really important. So he discovered the program and dove into it before anybody else really in the state of Illinois had dove into it. And the result was making making a large number of projects downtown, saving a lot of buildings in downtown Rockford that they wouldn't have worked. The projects just would not have worked. And the other nice thing about it, the thing that appeals to me, I'm passionate about downtowns. We don't work in a lot of big cities, not that we're opposed to it, but we work in a lot of more rural communities. Part of it for me is the challenge. I'm from a small town in Wisconsin. I still live in Monroe, Wisconsin, but the economy is just a little bit different locally and construction costs are still high, but you have these beautiful buildings that you love that could be contributing even more to the community and seeing a way, trying to utilize some of these tools that exist to make them happen is a big driver, honestly, for all of us, all of us here. We have some old building geeks in the building here. So it's a, it's a bit of a passion thing. It aligns with our passions. We all love old buildings. We all love community. Yeah. 
and historic tax credits kind of pair those things. They make these projects, even in smaller communities, work that wouldn't work there. So when you're talking 40 to 45% of construction costs that you potentially have the ability to get back via historic tax credit investor, that's a big deal. That is a really big deal. So still, some of them are really challenging. It doesn't make them always a home run, but yeah. So that's kind of the origin. It started there. Yeah, but it's a significant amount of money to get the project to go ahead. Exactly, exactly. And there are some additional costs involved. Obviously, it's not like you don't have to do anything different than maybe you would. But once you get used to, once you understand the review process and what the expectations are, what the requirements are, we've essentially formed our niche there. We've dove into it. And like I said, we've never actually calculated what percentage of our projects are historic tax credit projects, but it's probably in the 90% at this point. And it's a very doable thing. It's a little daunting if you've never touched one before, but it's very doable. So that's kind of where we ended up, where we are. And it kind of morphed as it does with everything. You get a client who wants to do a project somewhere else and somewhere else and somewhere else. And pretty soon you are doing projects in six states, not because you ever intended to, but (laughs) just because it happened. And again, this particular skill set that we've, formed and the financing gap that it fills makes it a pretty appealing thing. So it's an interesting program. Like I said, we speak about historic tax credits quite a bit. So I geek out on it a little bit every once in a while. But I have some questions and I'd love to geek out on it so we can explain some of the ways that you do it. The first question I have is, does it have to be an historic building or can it be a new building in a historic district? It has to be a historic building. Okay. It has to be either individually listed, which nearly every community has at least one, I would say. Maybe not every, but it's close. Even in my little town of 10,000, Monroe, I can think of it. I think there's at least three that are individually listed on the National Register. And most, and this is one of those confusing things that people get confused about some because there are local historic districts. Right. Most communities have them. Local historic districts are not always the same as a nationally listed historic district. A lot of times they overlap, but not always. So it's one of those things to verify. That's all easy information to locate. We're actually working on the urban planning side of our firm has been a great meld here because, again, data nerds, we love data and stuff as well. And mapping, we've been working on trying to utilize some GIS and other things to develop an easy way to Somebody calls and says, hey, I have this building that I want to look at. And, okay, give us the address. We do quick data entry. And because we've cataloged things as such, we can very quickly see it's in the district. It's individually listed. It's a contributing building in the district, that sort of thing. But in the end, yes, it has to be individually listed or a contributing building in a historic district. So those are the two criteria. Those are the starting points, which is a lot of buildings, actually. It's a lot of buildings. Yeah. There are way more than people realize that exist within that. So, And I think that so many architects in our community, small firms, are really passionate and care about their downtowns, right? They see mm-hmm. their downtown struggling because of what's happened in the past few decades with mall development and retail, big box development, where they build a new retail center in these towns and the old downtown is left to die. Yeah, And a lot of them are coming back, right? A lot of them, the towns are starting to recognize the value of these downtowns Mm -hmm. and they're protecting them. They're listing them so they stay protected. Yeah, And they want to turn them into, you know, assets for the towns. My town that I live in, Waxhaw, North Carolina, is listed. Their downtown is listed. And it's this fantastic little town that could definitely be used with the program that you're talking about. Yeah. And I imagine that, you know, everybody who's listening can probably think of a town within their region that they work in that qualifies. Yeah. Yeah. I would guess so. Like I said, there are pockets in almost every community. And even if there aren't, that happens at some point. Right. And it's not a small lift to get a district listed, but we have also either aided, encouraged, helped, however however it's been in each situation. But 
We've seen some communities, some municipalities see it as a, almost as a business development, a strategy. Right. Community development strategy. We're going to invest in creating this district because we want people to invest in our community. And we recognize it's not cheap to do so or not cheap to renovate a building. So we're going to put as many tools in place so that we can draw developers or even entice local citizens to invest because in the end, it's got to work. Not everything can be a passion project. Right. And even passion projects usually have to at least pencil out somewhat. Otherwise, you know, banks won't even look at you. So we have seen it in that way. I'm working on a couple of projects in the community now that that's kind of how we ended up there was we talked to them about, hey, this is a great program. You have a lot of opportunity. You are wanting development. But here's a challenge. The numbers don't pencil out. What can you do to help the numbers pencil out? And they created a district. It's been a lot of work and a number of years in the making. But as a result, there's been a number of buildings, number of new businesses started, a number of buildings renovated that have kind of changed an entire section of that city now. So that's the exciting stuff, I guess. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Architects, listen up. Is something interfering with your happiness? or preventing you from achieving your goals? Regardless if you have a clinical mental health issue like depression or anxiety, or if you're just a human who lives in this world and is going through a hard time, therapy can give you the tools to approach your life in a very different way. I know this community of small firm architects very well, and I see, I see many of you struggling. That's why I reached out to this episode's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a platform that makes finding a therapist easier because it's online, it's remote. And by filling out just a few questions, BetterHelp can match you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. It's easy to sign up and get matched with a therapist. There's a link in the show notes. It's betterhelp.com slash architect. Just use that link, betterhelp.com slash architect. Clicking that link helps support this podcast, but it also gets you 10% off your first month of BetterHelp, so you can connect with a therapist and see if it helps you. If you need someone to talk to, consider online therapy with BetterHelp. Click the link in the show notes or visit betterhelp.com architect. That's betterhelp.com architect. Thank you to BetterHelp for supporting this podcast and for supporting our community of small firm architects. Running a small firm architect business is just plain hard. Endless to-do lists, employees to take care of, and your ever-present bottom line. So first of all, kudos to you for staying on top of it all. But let me tell you about Gusto. Gusto built an easier and more affordable way to manage payroll and benefits and more. They help over 300,000 businesses by taking the pain out of tasks like automated payroll tax filing, direct deposit, health insurance administration, 401k, onboarding tools, you name it, Gusto makes it easy. And they really care about their small business owners that they work with. Their support team is attentive and helpful. I've used them, I know. And since money can be tight right now, you'll even get three months free when you sign up. I use Gusto and I think you should check it out too. Just go to gusto.com slash architect. That's G-U-S-T-O.com slash architect and start setting up your business today. You'll see what I mean when I say easy. Again, that's three months free payroll at gusto.com slash architect. For over 30 years, RCAT has been providing AEC professionals with high-quality and up-to-date building product information. Today, RCAT.com is much more than a product catalog, with BIM, CAD, and specifications created in collaboration with manufacturers. Beyond that, RCAT.com also offers lead data, continuing education resources, newsletters featuring the latest projects and products, and, don't forget, detailed podcasts. Artcat.com is truly the one-stop shop for everything architecture. Try it out. Go to Artcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. What I love talking about with you is not only 
that you're doing this, right? Yeah. That you're doing development, that you're using this historic tax credit to do it. So it becomes this unique thing. I love that other architects now understand that that's possible, where right? they can go explore and learn from it as well mm-hmm. and maybe do some projects. But you've also built a brand around it, right? Your yeah. firm is known for it. You've become an expert at it. Your partners have become experts at this. This is a service that you provide, right? Yeah. That when a developer wants to do a project and is looking for someone who understands how to do this, at any level, right? Whether it's the architecture or the approval process or the yeah. confirm all of it, right? You know all of it. And so you yep. can be hired at that level and they come to you because you know it, right? You get that project every time because you're the expert. Yeah. And I love that. I want to point that out so listeners understand. Again, someone who has focused on a specific niche and built a brand around it and is thriving because of it. And so it's exciting to understand that part of what you do. Yeah. Like I said, it kind of happened organically. It was out of necessity. It started as a passion. We want to see this happen. Yeah. And we've joked sometimes that in some communities, we are essentially their economic development because we exactly see these buildings and we're like, this building would be great. And then start shopping that building around to different developers that we've worked with over the past and throwing out ideas and this is one of those things that it can be daunting at first, but one of the reasons it works well for us is we do all of the tax credit consulting in-house as well. So yeah. all of the application processing and everything, all the communication with the state reviewers and the federal reviewers at the National Park Service, we do all of that as well and handle the application process, which we have done externally as well. We'll consult with other architects as well on projects that we are doing the architecture on though too, it is almost exclusively we're doing the consulting as well, just because it's clean. You know, I can turn around and talk to exactly Ashley, what are the major character elements that we need to make sure that we protect in this building? And here's what we're looking at doing. What is your conversation with the reviewer, Ben? And we're part of those conversations. So it works well in that way. It's still a very interactive process, but yeah. I could imagine that from a developer's point of view, that's fantastic, right? That yeah. It's a one-stop shop. Hire the architect. Most people don't want to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll do all the hard and messy, dirty work, and they'll go and do the development work, and it all works out. It's definitely not what I anticipated getting into, I will say, when I was in architecture school. But I didn't Yeah. If you connect the dots back to history, yep. right, it makes sense that this is where you've landed for sure. Exactly. It makes a lot of sense, honestly. A lot of the projects I worked on as a carpenter were historic houses and other things, recreating elements and doing all of that. And so it definitely all connects. But It's one of my favorite parts of doing this podcast is talking with somebody and having the conversation and then connecting the dots back to the early <laughs> conversation to look at where we are today because you've gone through all of that. That's why I do the origin story. Yeah. Right? It all makes sense. It's pretty cool. I enjoy it for that reason. Yeah. So can you walk us through an example, right? Sort of talk a little bit about a project that you've worked on, even if it's sort of generic concept, sort of what you did at the beginning, what are the sort of the steps that you've gone through and ultimately what did the project become? Yeah, I'm going to reference a small project because it's a great fun one that it was actually the first project I started working on when I started here and it just finished now but it is the smallest historic tax credit project we've ever done. It was a, you know, most, not all, but most are a couple million and above. You know, we've got projects in the three to four, all the way up to $50 million construction cost historic tax credit projects. This one is under a million. So the other thing is, it's a lot more comparable to the smaller towns that I often talk with. But for us, the process often starts, we joke that people walk in the door and say, so I bought this building. (laughs) now what (laughs) yeah right right (laughs) and like i said before that's kind of where the historic tax credit thing came in because usually budgets were not reasonable but in this particular case it was a friend of the firms so the process generally how it works is we actually do because of the documentation we know we're going to have to document the entire building part of the process for historic tax credits is you're documenting the entire building photographically and in drawing form we do 3D scans of all of our buildings. 
all of the buildings we work on, you cannot exclude that. That is right. It's the first step. It's part of the service. If we're working on it. That's what we're doing. Just really quickly, what technology are you using for that? Now we are using actually Navis VLX. We added that last year, which is great. It's a lot faster. I would encourage people to look it up. It's pretty interesting technology. That's why I asked, because there's a lot of people who heard you say that and wanted to know what you were using. <laughs> it utilizes SLAM technology, and I could not tell you what all of the... That's an acronym. I don't remember what all of them are. I know that LIDAR is one of them. But the difference between that and the other ones we've used, we have owned a number of scanners over the years, but we still own a Matterport. That's one a lot of people are familiar with. Yes. Yeah. But that's limited. It's limited in what it can do. Great visually. Really great visually. But from an, an architect's standpoint, there are limitations when it comes to accuracy if you want to use the information for a whole lot. So right. okay. we use a VLX. It takes panorama, like we take 360-degree panoramas everywhere. For our purposes on the historic tax credit side, the reason we do that is we can extract images from anywhere in the building because we need part of the application process is photographic evidence and description of all of those character elements. And I am sure not alone in this, but you get home even in measuring, you get back to the office and you realize you did not measure <laughs> missed one that one, <laughs> or you, you missed this photo or that photo. And so even with projects down the street, it's still hugely beneficial for us. So we do that. That's the first step. And then we go through the building. We use Revit. So that's how we produce all of our drawings. We model the buildings based off of the scan, essentially using the scan and then the 3D walkthrough. And then the process, the nice thing again about it being all in-house HTC-wise as well is usually at that point, we are building the application. The part one application, which is essentially just determining or, or verifying that the building is eligible. Usually, you know before that, but it's a, essentially a formal step that is required there to verify that the building is eligible or confirming it, I should say. And then the part two, we start building during the schematic design and design development phase. So we're going through and saying what we're doing because these buildings, you know, one of the other things that people get concerned about with historic tax credit projects is I won't be able to do what I want to do. That's not true. You may not be able to just blow the whole building out and you know, have complete free reign. But in most cases, I'm sitting in one. This is a project from a number of years ago now, the Prairie Street Brew House in Rockford, where our office is located. This was an adaptive reuse project that was a historic tax credit project. The building does not look identical inside to what it did before. This is not a historic restoration. It's an adaptive reuse. And that is what most of the projects are. So during that schematic design and design development phase, we're usually we're communicating with the state reviewer at the time. Here are some things that we want to do. What are your thoughts? We've got pretty good relationships with a lot of the state reviewers. And so we can call them. And before doing a formal submission and starting a 30-day timeline, we can call them and just get an initial take. What are your thoughts? Another benefit of that specialization, right? Yeah. The network that you build to become the expert that you are. Exactly. And it's been really beneficial in that way because once they get to know you as well, they're willing to... Right. They trust you. Kind of talk you through things. They're never going to give you an answer. This is exactly what you should do because they can't. There's, you know, right. that's just not how it works. Yeah. But at least you get honest feedback without having to go through all the formal channels every time. So usually at the time of completing design development... At that point, you know, your design is pretty much locked in. There may be minor changes that occur. Usually we submit our part two application. The drawings that go with it are the design development drawings. So it's pretty developed. Not all of the details there, but there's, you know, a lot of things are there. And the part two application, what that is, is essentially there's a description of the important character elements of the building and what we're doing that affects them. That could be a space. The lobby of a hotel may be one of the defining features of the building. So one of the things that we will do in the part two application is we describe the existing condition of that space. And then the next portion of it is we're describing what we're doing to that space. And here's all the drawings. Here's the photos. Here's all the drawings that show what we're doing. Here's the photos of the existing condition. So we do that through the entire building. 
So we're building that. That's why it's nice to do it in tandem because we're building it all along. And mm-hmm. Ashley and Michael, our urban planners, do a lot of that application process. I'll get into some of it as well as Jen, but Ashley and Michael do most of it. And so it's nice they can ask us as we're designing because designers like to do that. We go back and forth with them so that they can document everything. But then we submit that. And usually at that point, again, we've done this enough now that you have a pretty good feeling. There may be a couple of things that you're like, this is a questionable one. We might be pushing the boundaries on the standards on this one. So it may not be approved. Or we may get a conditional approval that we need to revise this, that sort of thing. We'll usually proceed at that point on into construction documents while we wait. Because there's a time period that's reviewed. It gets reviewed at the state. Mm -hmm. The state, they make a recommendation to the National Park Service and send everything on. So typically, it's like a 30-day period at the state and another 30 to 45 days at the National Park Service. And then you get an approved part two or a almost always conditionally approved. But every once in a while, you'll get denied. And for these reasons. And usually, that's something that, you know, it's things that we can work through. So that's the kind of the architect side of things. On the developer side of things, when we get involved on the development services side as well, which again, kind of happened organically and naturally, because a lot of people that are doing these buildings in these smaller communities, they're not professional developers. They've not done this before. So helping them navigate numbers and all of that became a necessity. We just developed the skill out of, it's a need. We want to see these buildings happen. We would love to do this project. We need to figure out how to make it work. So a lot of times at the beginning, we'll be involved in doing pro forma work. And this is, again, we're thinking about design ahead and general construction costs, what the potential tax credits would be and all of that in tandem. And that pro forma then kind of, in some ways, then informs our design process as well. It's a feedback loop, mm-hmm. essentially. So all the way through, we may be refining that pro forma, adjusting things a little bit until we get to actual construction costs. Project has been bid out. Here's the actual construction costs. And we're you know inputting all of that back into the pro forma to make it work. But yeah, so that's general process. I skipped a lot of things in there. I'm sorry. I jumped all over a little bit. That's okay. If anybody has any questions, they can reach out to you and get more details. <laughs> I'm always glad to talk more about it. Once it goes into construction, how involved are you on the construction end? We're fairly involved. It does depend on the client and the project, though, which I know is in some ways a cop-out answer, but it definitely does depend. On the more complex projects, we tend to be a lot more involved, especially those that have You know, this building, for instance, this was an industrial building. There's not a lot of character-defining features in it. It's more space, and there's a couple of things that are in it. But we're not talking very high-level finishes and all that, things that require a lot more attention to detail. So we may not be quite as involved on the CA side and something like this, but still involved. A little bit more intense when we're looking at a lot of moldings and millwork and all the layers of finishes and plaster and paint surveys and all sorts of other things, you can get into quite a bit in the CA side of things. But we're involved all the way through construction. A lot of times the lenders on the projects require it anyways. They want confirmation that everything's happening according to the... They're lending money based on an approved part two, which means that those tax credits are going to be eligible. Those tax credits, if you do something wrong, disappear. So they want to make sure everything's done according to plan. So we're involved. My background on construction sites, I would spend half my time on construction sites if I could anyways. Yeah, I'm sure it's hard (laughs) to keep you away, whether you're getting paid for it or not. Could you talk a little bit about your fee structure without getting into the details, but basically how are you getting paid for these projects? Them being adaptive reuse projects and every building being unique, this is a constant struggle for us, I would say. If I'm being completely honest, it's a constant struggle. And I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here. But we've adjusted things over and over again as we've gone through things over the years, as we've lost money on projects, as we, you know, that sort of thing. That's the hazard of passion projects. Exactly. You learn a lot of expensive lessons, it seems, sometimes. But our standard services are still just architecture 
And we always, on the historic tax credit side, that's always an extra. Partially because we want people to recognize the right. significance of this. This is not a normal thing. More experienced developers will look at percentages. Well, based on my construction costs, your percentage is whatever it is. And so being able to break things out and say, well, yes, standard may be in that range, but there's an element that is not standard here. Right. So we develop each one fairly specifically, though, because the complexity of the building, we have to, from the architecture side as well, especially with the historic tax credits in mind, project ahead how much extra work is going to be involved in this knowing that we're going to be coordinating the historic tax credit element of this as well. Is this a highly ornate building? Are there going to be a lot of extra details that we have to produce in this um, than maybe a standard, you know, an industrial building? So we'll look through that. Usually we're doing a comparison, some sort of comparison between, here's what we estimate the construction cost to be. I don't really care what the client thinks the construction cost is going to be. We estimate based on past project experience. We're usually comparing what are our hourly calculations compared to percentage calculations. And we try to land in some sort of range percentage-wise. But that range varies depending upon the complexity of the project, obviously. so And the size of the project and whatnot. So different fee for an industrial building than a historic courthouse, for instance. It's just not, they're not the same thing, apples and oranges. So it's a flat rate that you calculate based on your estimated time yeah. and percentage? Yep. We are almost always a fixed fee. There are elements that we do not do that. It's not uncommon for us to start and do exploration portions of work hourly. Yeah. I always tell clients at the beginning, I'm not trying to extract as much money out of you as possible. If the project is not going to work, that's fine. Pay us for what we're doing. And then after that, if it's not going to work, that's fine. I'm not here to stick you. So we will do some exploration at the beginning hourly, depending on what the project is. Sometimes they know and they just want to dive in right away. And we try to, with few exceptions, we try to do CA hourly. Because as, again, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's experienced this, you can lose your shirt in CA very quickly. Yeah. So we try to do it hourly. It doesn't always, not all projects, that's possible. But we try to do it hourly. And oftentimes they'll ask for a range. What do you think it's going to be? And we always have our hourly rates included in everything. But yeah, typically it's tax credit consulting is always a fixed fee unless you're doing initial exploration. Architecture all the way through normal phases, fixed fee. And interior design, we also have interior design in-house as well. And that's fixed fee as well. And then CA hourly. Well, that probably makes it a lot easier for the developer as well while they're trying to figure out their budget. They have a fixed fee number that they just plug into their yeah. into their budgeting. Yep. And it's not uncommon, especially for the more experienced developers, for them to ask us for a fee schedule, meaning like give us an idea of what we're going to be paying right. over the course of the next year, you know, by month. Yeah. And we've not without struggles, but we have done our best to try to improve our scheduling process <laughs> and be able to accurately do that. So it's just helpful. And I mean, it's helpful for us as well. So, yeah. but yeah, from their perspective, being able to budget a specific number, build that into the pro forma is incredibly helpful. Yeah. That's a necessary element. Very, very interesting. It's interesting from the business side, as well as the project management side and the work that you're doing and how you're doing it. I appreciate you for sharing all of the details and the process of how you're doing it. I'm sure there's many, many listeners right now saying, oh, I know exactly of a project that I could go. <laughs> and I love that also that you're creating your own work in many cases, right? Yeah. You're identifying buildings that can be developed, showing that this can be done through this process and then going, finding a client and saying, hey, client, you know, this project could work. You can make money on it. And then they come and they do it from the development side. Actually, there's two projects we're now co-developing that started out as that. One of them is just a building I've always loved in my hometown. Yeah, I always love loved it. it. Always wanted it to be something. Couldn't convince the guy to sell the building. And I finally, I was like, well, if you don't want to sell it, let's do something with it. That's cool. Yeah. I came from a meeting actually before this for that. But so it's enabled some of that, which is kind of nice. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Before we wrap up, Aaron, 
What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Well, I can only speak from my experience. <laughs> so the thing that I would say that it sticks with me the most, looking back through the history here before me and since I've been here, is it's very tempting to do everything. It's very tempting to do everything. Yes. But that is very hard to do and make money. And in the end, not that I'm money obsessed, but if I don't make money doing it, I'm going to end up doing something else because I have bills to pay. I have a family to feed. Right. And I want to enjoy what I do. So my recommendation is find that particular element that you're good at. And there's market for. That's an important part, obviously. But for us, that was historic buildings. We love old buildings. We love community. Community is usually built around old buildings in the center of town. And we're solving a problem for them. What can we do to make these buildings sustainable? What can we do to make the projects attainable? So finding something that you love to do and that solves a problem for the potential client. Because if we're not solving a problem, we're not going to be needed very much. So, right. And my thought is, obviously, more problems you can solve, the better. But at least find one and try to get really good at solving that problem. So that's kind of how we ended up doing what we're doing. Yeah, excellent. His name is Aaron Halverson. The firm is Studio GWA, and you can find them on the internet, studiogwa.com. That's where you can also connect with Aaron. If you have any more questions, just reach out and say, hey, I just heard you on the Entree Architect podcast, and I want to know more about what you do. Thank him for sharing his knowledge with us, please, when you connect with him. Aaron, I do appreciate you for coming by here. First of all, I appreciate that you're doing the work that you're doing, right? That you're saving these buildings, that you're improving these downtowns, making these downtowns vibrant, thriving assets in these towns, competing head-to-head, one-on-one with the newer retail districts, right? That they have their place in every town and they can become these beautiful places where people can go and enjoy themselves and the towns can earn money from, you know, through taxes and the things that happen when thriving downtown development happens. And so thank you for leading that charge and doing the things that you're doing. And thanks for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Glad to do it. Loved talking to you and look forward to talking again. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a link with a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. And that's how we have grown to serve thousands of architects just like you. Share a rating, write a review, but most important, share a link to this episode that you just listened to. Go send it off to a friend. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode. Links to the sponsors and all the resources that we discussed today in today's episode. They're all found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Entree Architect Podcast select episodes are available for continuing education credit. Go learn more at gablemedia.com slash members. And if you are a small firm architect, listen up, architects. Join us today at Entree Architect Network, the worldwide organization for small firm entrepreneur architects. That's you with monthly business training, business resources, special session webinars, mastermind groups, and a thriving community of small firm architects. Your peers are there. Hundreds of them are there already. We will provide you with the support and the encouragement that you need to succeed. Hey, and this is super exciting. This is new coming in 2024, Entree Architect Coaches. Yes, finally, after all these years, business coaching for small firm architects. It's coming to Entree Architect Network in early 2024. Join us. Try Entree Architect Network for free for 30 days. It's free for 30 days. Visit network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. That's network.entrearchitect.com to learn more. Try it. Come join us. Try it for 30 days. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage. Love, learn, and share what you know.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.